So um, there was a Christian theologian by the name A.W. Tozer, uh, and he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you guys have, I don't know if you guys like reading, but uh, if you guys do, that's, that's something that's recommended on almost every pastor's list. Um, and basically, one of the most important things that he said was, what comes into your mind or what image comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because that fundamental thought will control and shape your entire being. And, and the question is, what image, <laughs> what image or what characteristics or picture of God comes into your mind when I talk about God? Uh, I don't know if you've really thought of that. But, you know, in the years I've, I've done ministry, a sad reality is that most people's image of God is put together primarily by things outside of the scriptural witness. It's by primarily our experiences or what our culture feels that Jesus is like. In fact, uh, one thing that you often see within the Christian world is people constructing Jesus into their own image. You know, for example, you see this in America uh, where uh, people who take Jesus and mold him to be a Republican, uh, who basically will vote on every single thing that a Republican would, uh, and that being a Republican is part and parcel with being a Christian. Some people believe that. Some people believe that if you are a Democrat, that you are not a Christian, right? And I know for us, we were like, well, how do you get to that point? But it happens. And it might not be as blatant as this, but for many of us, we might fall into that same category. Um, but it, all, it happens not only in America, but also even in Montreal. You know, if you guys were on the prayer walk with us, we learned about the history of the church and how uh, people came here. And there was some good that the church did. But also, Jesus was almost used as a means of oppression, right? Where people's religious agendas kind of drove the agenda of the church, and people were forced to live into a particular type of life that was not necessarily biblical, but more cultural and politically driven. And when we do this, this has grave consequences. And this is one of the reasons why the Christian witness in America and in Montreal has lost its power. Because the minute you talk about Jesus, for a lot of people, the first image that comes to their mind is that Jesus. It's a Republican Jesus. Or it's some oppressive figure from history. And who would want to worship uh, a Jesus like that? Now, what's interesting is that secular people also cast Jesus in a particular light as well. Uh, for people who are a little bit more charitable, they'll look at Jesus not as God, but they say he's just a very great moral teacher, an example that we can follow. Uh, others who are less charitable will see him more as someone that was miscast by his followers in order to gain political power, uh, like the, hence the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I know that was a big controversy. Was that a big controversy here too? No? Okay. Not, not necessarily? Okay. In America, it was. People are like shook in their faith because of the Da Vinci Code. Um, uh, and all I have to say is that, you know, when you look at Christian circles and even in the secular world, one thing when you read about Jesus and study him is there are so many different versions of who Jesus is. And this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, it's actually been happening since the days of Jesus. Uh, people either thought he was God, a Messiah, maybe a great prophet. The religious leaders like the Pharisees thought that he was of the devil. And why I'm saying this is that I want to kind of remind you guys that the point of Mark, as we've been saying, is that Mark wants to answer that question, who is Jesus? And throughout this narrative, everyone is trying to figure this out. And 
Because he's a literary genius, Mark actually uses the unbelief and the incorrect answers of the characters in order to help the readers really understand the true identity of Jesus. Now, what's funny is that there's only one category of people that truly understand who Jesus is in the Gospels. Do you guys know who it is? It's the demons, right? The demons are the only ones who understand that he is the son of the Most High. But the disciples, the Pharisees, and other characters are constantly misconstruing who Christ is and always coming to the wrong conclusions. Now, in light of this, today's, today is a very important passage because we get the divine opinion of the Father of who Jesus is, the true identity. And so what I want to do for this morning is I want to unpack these three f- short verses first, and then I'll give you two implications to kind of take home with you guys in light of this passage. Sound good? Yeah? Okay. So uh, last week, uh, we left off with John the Baptist basically telling us that someone who is mightier than he will come onto the scene. And this person is mightier because he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and not with water. And immediately after, Jesus comes onto the scene and he is baptized in the Jordan River. And what John, what Mark is doing is that he's signaling to the readers that Jesus is the one that John the Baptist was talking about. Now, I want to make a few notes about this passage. Uh, The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that when Jesus goes into the water and he comes out, it says that the heavens were torn open. Okay, The, The key word is torn. When you look at Matthew's and Luke's account, it only just says heavens were opened. But Mark uses more violent language of the heavens being torn open. And it's because he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, where it says that God would rend the heavens open. And in that prophecy, it's about how God will open up the heavens and he will come back to his people. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that there's been 400 years of silence, uh, no prophecy uh, from God, from the book of Malachi until the John the Baptist. And what, and so for the people of God, it almost felt like the heavens were literally shut closed. It, there was nothing. It was silent. And Mark is essentially saying that this is the moment that finally heaven has opened up to them once again. And once again, Jesus is the beginning of the unfolding of God's new plan and good news for the people of God. Okay? So that's the first note I want you guys to make. Now, as we keep going, it says that the Spirit descended upon Jesus and a voice from heaven declares of Jesus, uh, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, two quick notes. First is that the better phrasing uh, in the original language is not that the Spirit descended on him, but actually into him. Okay? Meaning that this is the moment where he is filled and empowered to do the work of God that the Father has sent him. Okay? The second note, is that the father declares this affirmation over the son. Now, this declaration that he gives is actually a composite of two Old Testament passages. Okay, Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Okay, let me read these two. Uh, Psalm 2-7 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, now Isaiah 42-1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, I want you to listen up here, because 
these two Old Testament passages put together gives us the true identity of who Jesus is. Psalm 2 is a very famous royal psalm, and it talks about the true Israelite king that will one day come, who's affectionately called the Son of God, and he's going to be given the nations. And so Jesus, on the one hand, is the true Israelite king that people have been waiting for. In Isaiah 42, Mark uses this passage to identify him as a servant of the Lord. Now, when you look in the book of Isaiah, throughout the book, there is this character called the servant of the Lord who unfolds God's plans. And what's interesting is in Isaiah 53, and I'm doing a lot of passages, stay with me. Isaiah 53, it says that the servant of the Lord was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Basically saying that through this servant, that the sins that we committed will be paid, it will be paid, will, the servant of the Lord will pay the penalty of that sin and will be saved. And when you put these two Old Testament allusions together, you get Jesus' true identity. Jesus is the suffering king. Okay, that is his identity in the book of Mark. Hence why the logo. Okay, you see the crown and then you see the thorns, right? He is the suffering king. He's a king that's not going to rule by coercion or force or violence, but he's going to be unlike any other king that has ever come before or after him because he's going to rule with a self-sacrificial servant-like love. And he is different because, and this is huge, because every other ruler in Israel's history has always used their position and their power for their own self-benefit, to put themselves higher in order, and they would sacrifice their people so that they can receive the benefit of their own position. But here comes Jesus who operates by a different pattern, a pattern that seeks to use his status to, to bring a life to other people and sacrifice himself. And this is who Jesus is. Now, I want to give you two, applica- uh, two applications here uh, to take home with us. Uh, if you're writing notes, the first is that Jesus is a king that does not remain at a distance from his people, but enters into their sin, their pain, and their brokenness. You know, last week we saw John the Baptist uh, calling the people of Israel to repent and to be baptized in the Jordan River, right? And then Jesus comes onto the scene, and then he gets baptized along with other people. And I don't know about you guys, but this passage always confused me. Because wasn't baptism reserved for sinners? Wasn't it a sign of repentance? But Jesus is sinless, right? He's God incarnate. He is perfect. So why is he getting baptized? And what theologians will tell you is that Jesus is getting baptized not because he has something to repent of, but because he is choosing to identify with the sins of his people by going into the same waters. In that moment, he is making the struggles, the pain, the brokenness, the sins of his fellow Jews his very own. Uh, If you look at Matthew's account, Jesus actually tells John the Baptist why he must get baptized. I don't know if you guys remember, but John the Baptist in the beginning actually refuses to baptize Jesus, right? He's like, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, no, you have to baptize me, right? Uh, they're having this exchange. And in Matthew, he actually tells him why. And this is what he says. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, without going into too much detail, what Jesus is basically saying is that I am dedicating myself to making sinners righteous. And part of that work is empathizing. It's stepping into the mess that all humanity has created and not keeping himself at a distance. Uh, 
And this is such a contrast to the religious leaders that we're going to meet throughout this narrative who essentially build a wall to separate themselves from the sinners, right? They don't even want to associate with any, anyone who might be unclean. But Jesus chooses to enter into their mess. And you see this throughout his entire ministry where he's stepping into the darkest places. Where does he eat? He's always eating in tax collectors' homes with prostitutes, with the unclean. He's, having, he's being in community with them. He's eating with them. I'm sure he's crying and grieving over their sin and their brokenness, interceding on their behalf, walking with them, right, holding up the weight of their struggle, all of it leading to the ultimate act of stepping into their mess on the cross where he dies for their sins on their behalf. You see, Jesus is a king that enters into our pain and sin and walks with us. And I wonder if you guys understand how healing and powerful that is. Um, as you guys know, you know, Jesse, my wife Jesse and I, we had a, a baby three months ago. And, you know, in those moments, I can't help but to think about what happened to us in 2017 before Micah when Jesse had a miscarriage. Uh, I was actually coming, I came back from a mission trip in uh, China, and she picked me up from the airport, and we went home. And she gives me like this present, like this box, and I was like, oh man, did I forget the anniversary? Like, why, <laughs> why am I getting a present right now, okay? I really thought I messed up somehow. Um, but I opened the present, and there's like a little present, and then there's a note that says, I'm five weeks pregnant. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? And I was like shocked. I didn't know what to say uh, or whatnot. But, you know, things quickly changed uh, a few weeks later at our first doctor's appointment where, you know, they do ultrasound, you're excited to see the baby. Um, and the doctor didn't say anything for a long time. And you know that something's wrong. And it looked like she was like searching for something. And she finally turns to us and she's like, you know, we can't find the heartbeat and that it's going to be a miscarriage. And I was left speechless because I didn't think that was a possibility. You know, when you're growing up, you know, people, you know, you just think, like, if you have a baby, it's so easy. That it's just smooth, that there's no issues. And so we were like, we didn't, it wasn't even in our minds that something wrong could happen. And at that point, we just felt this huge weight pressing in on us. Because the moment when you, you know, for those of you who don't have kids, the moment that you find out that your wife or you're pregnant, you know, you start imagining what it's going to be like to be a father or a mother, or you imagine what they're going to look like. Um, and I'm, I'm always, I hope she look, he looks like Jesse, right? Um, and all these things, and there's like the fear and excitement of being a first-time parent, knowing that this life is growing inside of her and all of that. And then to have that taken away in an instant was such a weird and strange feeling. Uh, and it was actually a lot more painful than I thought. And what was difficult, um, obviously it's so much more difficult for the women because she had to carry uh, the baby for another few months and experiencing uh, pregnancy symptoms. So she was still throwing up, she was still feeling nauseous, and just being reminded every day that there was this life inside of her that will not develop and one day would have to be expelled. And a few months later, she passed the fetus and it was like one of the most painful experiences that she's ever had, a lot of blood. And to make things even worse, uh, this was when Jesse's mom was going through cancer treatment. And a few months later, she actually passed away. And so this was a really difficult season uh, for both of us uh, in many ways. Uh, but both of us have distinct moments where we felt God really met us in our pain. Uh, for me, it was a few days after we found out that it was going to be a miscarriage. And I was driving to church. I had some worship music on. And all of a sudden, I just like broke down and cried. And I rarely cry. 
And honestly, it was like the worst moment because it was on the freeway. And like, I was like crying and it was like blurry and I couldn't see. And I was like, God, why did you have to meet me now? Um, but the reason why I was crying, it wasn't necessarily because I was sad or I was angry, although I was feeling those things very deeply. Uh, but I don't know, in that moment, I just, in some real way, I just felt like God knew and that he saw me, that he knew every emotion that I was feeling, that he knew what it was like to lose a child and that it felt like he was grieving with me. And I just remember tangibly feeling like God was healing my wounds in that moment. You know, he didn't change any of the circumstances. The baby was still going to be a miscarriage. But there was something profoundly healing and restoring about God stepping into that difficult moment with our family together with us. A feeling seen and known and understood. And this doesn't mean that it wasn't painful, but there was a comfort in knowing that we serve a God who chooses to step into all of our mess and our, our problems. I mean, even on an earthly level, isn't that sometimes the most comforting? When you go through issues, sometimes the most annoying people are the ones who are always trying to solve it, right? <laughs> trying to give you uh, all the solutions. I know us guys, we love doing that, right? <laughs> Lesson number one in marriage, don't try to solve all your wife's problems, okay? Sometimes just being present is infinitely more powerful than someone trying to fix that issue. And God is with us in that moment. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, one of the things that differentiates the Christian God from any other God is that our God actually knows what we went through because he was once human. He went through every single trial that we could have gone through, and he understands us. Right? There's, there's a difference when someone who's gone through the same thing is empathizing with you and someone who's never gone through that, there's a huge difference, right? But we have a God who can actually relate to us in everything that we've gone through. And there's so much power in that. So what this shows us is that we have a God who chooses to enter into the sinner's waters in the Jordan River. Now the second implication, and I'll end with this, is that this moment that Jesus experiences in the Jordan River where the father declares the words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is not only declared over Jesus, but through Christ, it is declared over you as, you, as sons and daughters of the Most High. That you, and this becomes the basis of our identity. You are the father's beloved in whom he is well pleased. And let me put this in another way. This declaration that the father has over you is the truest thing about you, that you are the father's beloved. And this is so important because what you think is the truest thing about you or what you believe is your truest identity is where we fundamentally derive our sense of worth and identity and value from. And when it comes to this, many of us, we have very different ways of deriving our sense of identity. And let me just list a few really quickly. I mean, I could have done like a million of them, but I try to generalize a little bit. Uh, for many of us, we get our sense of identity from what we do, right? And I think this is true for most, most people. Think about it, when you go to like a party or like a hangout, you meet someone for the first time, how do you let someone else know who you are? What's the first thing, one of the first things you say? What do you do, right? And that's one of the first things you ask. And so for many of us, our careers give us a sense of who we are in this world. I am a pastor, I am a graphic designer, I am a student, I am this or that. And there's a problem with this, as you guys know. What happens if we can't do that job anymore? What happens when we retire? 
What happens when we don't get the job that we actually want and we have to do a job that we hate? What happens when we are not promoted? What happens when we're not seen in our job? Our sense of identity collapses. And when we build our sense of identity on what we do, it is fragile foundation that we are placing our life on. Now, the same thing applies for those of us who wrap our identity around what we have, whether it's a relationship we have, material possessions, how many zeros we have in our bank account, um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) status, wealth, a reputation that you have. And the problem with this approach is not not only that it can easily be taken away, but it's also that history and personal anecdotes and stories have shown us that when we have what we think is going to satisfy us, it never truly does. You know, there's that famous story of John D. Rockefeller, who was the richest man uh, at that time, where where the reporter famously asked him, how much money is enough for you? And he famously replies, just one more dollar. Right? Never satisfies. You know, I kind of think about it this way. I don't know, I was thinking about it on the dry, in the morning. And um, have you guys fasted before? Yeah, you guys have fasted? Okay. Fasting is the spiritual practice I hate, but also <laughs> I, I struggle with the most. That's why I hate it. But I remember I, I uh, fasted for three days once uh, with the church when I was like, when I was like in my early uh, 20s. And you know, when you fast, like you don't talk about spiritual things, right? With your friends. All you talk about is like what you want to eat. <laughs> And you start imagining how it's going to taste, and you're like, oh my gosh, that moment is going to be like amazing. It's going to be like life-changing. But for me, I don't know why, every single time I break the fast, it's so anticlimactic. It wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And I feel like that's the same way with so many different things, right? Like you think if you have that relationship or that job or that reputation or status, The minute that you get it, you might enjoy it for a few weeks, but it becomes old, all right? The exhilaration goes away, and it's never as satisfying as you thought. You know, just even as a pastor, you know, in uh, L.A., when we started the church that I was at, uh, let me back up. Actually, the first church that uh, I planted with uh, another pastor, it didn't do so well. Right? And so I dreamt of like, having like, this successful church like, that does well. And then we planted another church, and then it like, blew up. Right? Like, it was the fastest-growing church in L.A. Like, we were, we were, people were like, knowing us and all that. And it felt good, but like, honestly, after a little while, you're like, oh, it's not that great. Like, every church, small or big, has problems, and you're stressed either way. Right? It's not as satisfying. And when we build our identity on what we have, it's really an illusion that it's going to give us the gratification that our hearts are looking for. Now, lastly, uh, some of us, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but we build our identity on the negatives or what we don't have. Right? Some of us, we see ourselves in terms of our past failures or that we don't have money or that you know, we are unlovable, that we can't maintain a relationship. And those voids and deficits begin to define our sense of identity and who we are. And what's scary is that when you begin to believe that about yourself, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you end up living into that lie that you have constructed for yourself. And this is why I think Jesus says this. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, that word life is, is not the word bios, which is commonly used, that physical life, but it's the word psyche, which speaks to the person's identity. 
And Jesus is basically saying, for those of you who try to build and construct and maintain an identity on your own, you will lose it. But if you lose it for the sake of Christ, you will find your true identity. Brothers and sisters, the truest thing about you now, this is the journey of discipleship, for you to believe this in your heart, that the truest thing about you in Christ is that you are the Father's beloved in whom God's favor rests upon. And this is the surest foundation we could stand on because it rests on the eternal and sufficient work of Christ. Your failures have already been paid for. There's nothing that you can do to make this untrue about you. This is the power of our identity in the gospel. No matter what people say, no matter what your past record says, the truest thing about you is that you are the Father's beloved. And I want to say this. I don't know who needs to hear it, but you are loved full stop. Not because you did something, not only if you do this or that, but you are loved, period. No matter how much guilt you might feel, no matter how bad your performance record is, you are loved by the Father. And his love rests upon you for all of eternity. Amen. Okay, let's pray.